Um, I really enjoyed this book, and there were so many ways that it clearly um, illuminated aspects of my life that I had been either only mildly aware of or had been kind of actively upset about for a while, but um, in the spirit of the phenomenon that Mark is describing in this book, I just continued to subject myself to kind of relentlessly because that's, after all, the sign of the times. So one of the first things that um, struck me about his description of boredom and the interface and its particularly contemporary expression um, is that you know we all have these ways that we kill time or these kinds of mindless activities that we do. And I play Scrabble on my phone. And I haven't, I wish I'd been keeping track. I wish there were like a built-in counter because I'm sure by now I'm up to like many thousands of games. I only ever play against the computer. I don't even play against other human beings. So even when I win, it's absolutely meaningless because literally the computer is omniscient and there's an algorithm that decides how often it's gonna let me win, probably calibrated to keep me coming back enough. So if I won 100% of the time, that wouldn't be challenging enough, but I certainly win more than half the time. And then you can just change the setting and it'll recalibrate for you. So for example, you know, my mother, who's more ambitious than I am, plays on a harder setting and wins fewer games. But I noticed that the way that I play Scrabble um, is is very emblematic of a lot of what Mark's talking about in this book. I take it out and my fingers scroll to it almost without a signal, without a conscious signal. I mean, as soon as I'm in a subway station or going to the bathroom or waiting for my kids to fall asleep, there it goes. And these days anyway, as it doesn't take long. I'm, I'm playing the game and I have a conscious thought of, this is stupid, I'm bored, I'm not enjoying this and I keep playing anyway, or I finish that game and then the next time I go back. So there's something about the boredom that arises when you're trying to ostensibly ward off some other boredom or you're, you're trying to ward off some kind of intolerable lacuna in, in entertainment because we're, we're so used to constant entertainment these days and then you discover that that very thing that you're using to ward off boredom is, is causing you boredom but there's kind of no escape from it. And this, this is the experience that continued to come back to me as I read this book. So I think the many virtues of the book include the way that they explain these persistent philosophical phenomena and certainly human conditions of boredom and human moods and so on, not to mention existential anxiety that humans have always had, but it explaining them in terms of our contemporary predicament in, and in a way that actually ought to make us worry. So we're not just talking about boredom, we're talking about basically distraction from things like the erosion of democracy, you know, or climate change. So I found it very satisfying because I share most of Mark's uh, cynicism about the world. And, and I like, but it's, it's very readable. And there are just these many, it's just chock full of these moments of allusion to cultural artifacts or kind of experiences that we've all had that make you really confront what we're all feeling in a hazy way. Um, so I hadn't given a lot of thought to boredom before I read this book. Um, I, I had given thought to some of the philosophers who Mark references here. Um, but what really stood out for me, and I could be misreading this a bit, but this, this is sort of how I'm interpreting the book, is that boredom has always been around and that it's always been regarded as philosophically interesting or potentially philosophically interesting. But what's different now is some relationship between attention and boredom that's changed on my reading from previous generations. And that is that boredom used to be, like in the Heidegger example, a kind of absence 
of stimulation or nothing obvious to devote your attention to, which can be philosophically interesting, especially if you turn to more internal existential questions. Um, but now, much like with my Scrabble example, we are never ever, at least in, in affluent Western society, at a loss for things to focus our attention on. In fact, the problem is kind of just the opposite. So there's this attention economy that, that Mark has talked about in the book. And what's different is that it lulls us into believing that we can't be bored or that given enough choice, all we do is simply identify the entertaining or fulfilling object of our attention and ignore the rest. And then we are actually producing a kind of thriving that was hitherto unimaginable because we have this endless cornucopia of stimuli to choose from. And that all sounds so good. And so actually it conceals a whole bunch of things about I think, first of all, human psychology, and, and Mark talks a lot about the limits of rationality in the book, but also about something really insidious in this economy um, that I think a lot of people are starting to realize is, is the failed promise of liberalism and the notion that we're all rationally choosing subjects who simply given enough freedom and money can make our lives go well is, is a bit of an illusion. Um, so boredom used to be kind of not having something to pay attention to, and now in a way it's having too much to pay attention to. And so we, we experience boredom and cultivate our identities now by making choices about where to devote our attention. So I, I think this book is very much about selfhood and identity, which coincidentally is kind of my main squeeze. But I think that the title is, is a great, it's, I think it's a fantastic title, but it really points us to this. Wish I were here. Who is this I? Um, this feeling of being absent in one's own life, like being dwelling in the Instagram version of one's life instead of being, quote, present in the actual life is, I think, a fairly ubiquitous feeling that a lot of people have. But we cultivate ourselves through our selective use or non-use of these interfaces. So like Mark, for example, I'm not on social media. And that could become a thing that I say about myself, like I'm not on Facebook which of course is ironically defining myself and curating my selfhood in part in relation to this very interface. And it just means that I'm devoting my attention elsewhere. So like when I'm playing Scrabble, I think, well, this isn't the best use of my time, but there are many worse things I could be doing, so it's not that bad. Um, so in a way, we're all forced to make choices about our attention and to accept that our attention is being relentlessly manipulated and there's no way out of it. And even not being on Facebook is not a way out of it. We're just in different modalities of interface and of having our attention uh, bent toward other purposes, which are usually you know, economic in nature, if not full out anti-democratic in nature. Um, so I found all this really fascinating and I think that the implications for selfhood and the sort of critique of the kind of subject who would have been necessary to make liberalism survive this period of human history are really important. Um, and I'll give you a few little excerpts that I very that I like on this theme. And then I'm going to end by pointing to two kind of quasi solutions that people have proposed, but that I think Mark's work have already has already kind of skillfully undercut. Um, and I'll get to that in a second. So on selfhood. Um, this is a quote from page 108. Facebook is exhibit A in a networked system of interface influence. It uses our desires and fears against us. This is the production and consumption of selfhood 
being actively abetted by the political and eco economic system as such, in which many participate blithely, glibly, happily. I found that extremely resonant. Um, so we think that we have control of ourselves and we're actually being given, in a way, kind of aesthetic freedom in a Nietzschean sense to make ourselves, but actually we're the dupes in this system. Um, and he says, at the very beginning on the subject of restlessness, I am troubled, restless, overstimulated. I am consuming myself as a function of the attention I bestow. I am a zombie self, a scepter, a specter suspended in a vast framework of technology and capital, allegedly meant for my comfort and entertainment. And yet, and yet, I cannot find myself here. Um, so, and then he later asks, who is this I who's imagined to be the subject of boredom? So I think that we have some philosophical precedents for these questions, but what we're seeing is that none of them quite hold out. Like the question of, you know, where is myself? obviously presumes that there is some self who's prior to the engagement with the interface who could be retrieved or salvaged if we just unplugged or if we just kind of burrowed inward sufficiently we would find that self but i mean that's already been exposed by many philosophers as as so much fiction and what i think what the technology is doing is it's just making it that much more conspicuous that you know you think you can create yourself or that if you go on a news fast or a social media fast or something, you will rediscover your, yourself. But there's no self there that's, that's more solid, more authentic, that can explain and survive all of the choices you make when you're on the interface. Um, and then there's kind of a Foucauldian move too, which is to say you just throw yourself into the randomness and throw yourself into the novelty and you don't need to have a prior self there is no prior self, but yourself is what is kind of doing the agentic actions in that world. But that also seems less and less possible or attractive in a world where algorithms are already know more about ourselves than we do and are already curating what we consider to be exposure to, to the new or to the different. So there's two um, kind of responses or solutions I've come across that aren't taken up in the book, so I just wanted to throw them out and I would be interested in, in what Mark thinks of them. One is this article I read in The Atlantic, it just came out in June 2019, um, about randomness, and the author, Joe Pinsker, um, was trying to circumvent the algorithms that were telling him what he was interested in before he himself you know, already knew what he was interested in as a means of basically buying his attention and selling his data and all those evil things that algorithms do now. So he's aware of the problem, so he's, but he's not unplugging. He's trying to find a way as a self of navigating this labyrinth in a way where he's going to feel less manipulated. So um, he writes, quote, what I was trying to do then was stop Facebook from doing what it is inherently good at and hack it to give me the reverse, serendipity, surprise, heterophily. Soon I started to wonder, were there other better ways to do this? I enlisted the help of other algorithms. I did this with a tool called Noisify, which populates one's Facebook search bar with random words. <laughs> Kathy Dang, a programmer in San Francisco, built Noisify after the 2016 election when, she, when people she knew seemed obsessed with political, quote, filter bubbles. Um, so what I like a lot about his take is that he's acknowledging that boredom is not just the absence of stimulation or, or repetition. 
actually it's repetition disguised as novelty, but it's really sort of confirming where we already were and it produces a restlessness and then it makes it hard for us to understand other people. So he's trying to uh, turn that logic against itself by saying he's going to throw himself into novelty, but in a random way. And I thought this was intriguing and randomness um, is uh, maybe not a philosophically tested kind of antidote to boredom as such, but it's also not one that really would have come up so much in the 18th and 19th centuries. And there's really this phenomenon now where we feel like we ought to be happy, we ought to be free because we have the world at our fingertips, but actually we're still living in our echo chambers and filter bubbles. Um, so I, I like Pinsker's attitude here, um, but, and it's kind of Foucauldian. It's like saying novelty, you know, risk-taking, transgression, don't decide in advance who you are. I don't think it solves the problem. I think clearly the, the question of identity and who is the self who can be determined to be free from such manipulation constantly resurfaces. Because for example, Pinsker's bombarded with images and websites and things that he didn't choose. But then he's going to either you know, confirm and resubscribe or disconfirm whatever the algorithm throws at him. So who is the self who is adjudicating whether to keep the you know, baby rats or the country music? At one point, he, he went to get a tattoo of an image that was randomly generated by Noisify. He was prepared to go and permanently emblazon on his body a random image, which I thought was really great. But I mean, at a certain point, he is, the buck stops there, but you're still begging the question of, so who is this unpolluted self who can decide in a meaningful way where to devote his attention? And I don't think randomness gets around that. And so that's, I think, the problem that Mark's book really helps us focus in on, which is philosophically interesting, but kind of by definition intractable, which is that if it's our attention that's being manipulated and we're bored because of an overstimulation, then how do we know who the unmanipulated person's attention is and where do we find that person? Um, he says on page seven, something to this effect, boredom is crucially the demon we wish to exercise, the affliction we need to sell, and yet our usual methods for seeking relief do nothing except spread the inner blight of a soul at war with itself. This reminds me of um, the concept of cruel optimism. I don't know if you've come across it. Lauren Berlant. So in a 2011 book of the same name, Lauren Berlant, who's kind of a cultural theorist, writes that cruel optimism is when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your flourishing. And that seems to describe a good amount of the phenomenon here. So randomness is sort of one response. The second one that I thought of all the time when reading this book, and I began to wonder if it was a deliberate choice that you totally didn't want to go into this territory, and I would understand if that were the case. But mindfulness. Maybe because I'm in education, I hear this a lot, but mindfulness is supposed to be the curative to so much of this malaise and over-technological stimulation and so on. Mindfulness is, I, so I, I caveat, I don't, I don't meditate. I'm way too neurotic for that. So I don't actually experience mindfulness. I sort of have an intellectual understanding of what I think other people are saying is valuable in it. And I think, oh, that, that sounds very valuable. And it seems to me that it would, if effective, be a curative to a lot of the very destructive tendencies associated with contemporary boredom. And that is that if you're mindful, you don't need constant stimulation, but you're also not forcing some kind of philosophical revelation. You're not forcing anything. 
you're trying to pare down and tune in. In other words, it's being here, it's being present. So wish I were here. Mindfulness is supposedly being here. And then the irony is that, again, I haven't had this experience, but practitioners say yourself evaporates and you realize that yourself isn't a real solid subject who precedes all your activities, but you're okay with that because consciousness is where your attention is focused. So making your own consciousness the kind of object of your attention is the goal there, and that's the whole goal, and there's no further goal. So that sounds great. Um, so I, I mean, I'm curious on your thoughts about this, but I also think that it's so ironic, and you've already, in a way, expressed the limits of this, Mark, because mindfulness has also been co-opted by the interface, of course. I mean, it's co-opted by neoliberalism so that companies train their workers in mindfulness so as to be more docile and compliant. <laughs> and soldiers literally are trained in mindfulness to be better soldiers. Figure that one out for me. So it's already been consumed in the way that ourselves and all of our activities are already consumed in this kind of insidious economy of attention, which is, I think, Mark's point. And it's also um, consumed by the interface because if you don't know how to meditate, don't worry, there's an app for that. Um, so I find that a very you know, ironic, fitting kind of conversation about why we can't get out of the boredom conundrum. But at the same time, I hold out a, a small window of hope that practiced properly, and that doesn't necessarily mean in a cave or on a mountaintop, but practiced in a, in a really sustained way, we can remember that maybe there isn't a self whose attention we're supposed to be directing in all the right places, but we can be okay with that if we step back far enough. So those are my thoughts. Thank you.